Hey, my name is Julie Leone and this podcast is called What's Your Thing? This is where I have conversations with people about their passions, ideas, pastimes, missions or lifestyle that I find inspiring. I hope you do too. Hey, it's Julie again on another episode of What's Your Thing? And today um, we're talking to Tre Flag Farm. And um, I first heard about this place, I don't know, years and years ago, when neighbours started to talk about it. It's up the hill, I pass it every day on the way to work. Um, and then I ran a course there. I was on a course, I didn't run a course there. I was on a course there last week, um, doing a permaculture course. And it, it was really apparent just how embedded in in the farm the permaculture side of things were but also how very much it was a working farm so welcome Ian Steele who's managed to find an hour out of his day thanks for being here no problem thanks for inviting me and we were just saying that we were going to name up front the fact that this is a working farm on a busy day full of people and so there might be interruptions that we have to press pause for or phone calls like immediately it comes through the moment we start talking the phone starts going oh my god I'm just going to reject that You need one. to get it. I can press pause. No, I've rejected it. Don't worry. I'm going to, um, I'll put, uh, um, do not disturb on. That will go straight to voicemail, I hope. Yeah. Sorry about so, that. what's your thing, Ian Steele? What's your thing? Well, if you had to put the thing of the moment, what is it? Well, I'll tell you what. Um, you actually, I think you put the finger on the button. Um, when you first started the, in, the interview just now, just a couple of moments ago, you said, um, I'm now talking to Trevelop Farm. And you're right, I, I view myself as the personification, the embodiment of Trevelop Farm. You didn't introduce me by name, you introduced me by what I do, um, which I really love. I really love because that's how I, that's how I view myself. And so if that's how other people view me, then I'm comfortable with that. Um, I suppose I, that's how I knew you first. You know, I knew the farm before I knew you. I only met yeah. you last week, but the farm's been on my radar for, I don't know, seven years maybe? So I moved back to the farm in 2006 and started taking it in a different direction. Before then, it was a, um, a very small, well, it still is a very small hillside farm, um, 100 acres, 40 hectares on the, um, the border of, of uh, North Wales, just outside Oswald Street. Uh, many years, it was a dairy farm owned and operated by my dad. Um, it's been in the family since 1904, uh, and it, it's been a conventional farm for the majority of its, its post-war existence, I guess. But we've got really interesting features on the farm that, that indicate agriculture going back thousands of years, let alone hundreds of years. Um, but my family's been here for what, 117 years. Um, uh, and I love the fact that I've got the opportunity to do what makes me happy yeah, and give, I've got a real opportunity to, to create something that, that gives me purpose. And um, I never have a problem working out what I want to do with my life. I'm, I'm here, I'm doing it. I'm, every day is a holiday. They say when you're, you're doing something you enjoy, then you never really go to work. Um, there's labor, hard physical labor at different times, and, but it's always enjoyable uh, in retrospect. Of course, it's difficult at the time, but it's the highs that, that make the low. No, it's the lows that make the highs. Uh, and we have pretty extreme lows, but that, that leads to pretty extreme highs as well when things do go right. And it's lovely to engage with people who recognise the fact that we're doing something a little bit special, lots of fun, um, engaging, and with a, a, 
uh, with a future, with a real, real exciting future, because we're doing something a bit different to all of our neighbours, I feel, that is setting us up to be really successful going forward. And that's successfully financially, which you can often hear with regard to um, agricultural businesses these days, um, but also um, soil-wise, carbon-wise, water-wise, air-wise, people's health-wise, sustainability-wise, community-wise, you know, we're ticking a lot of boxes with the sorts of projects we're running on the farm. When you, I mean, there's so much to ask about and I want to come back to all of those kind of things, but I guess when you, did you grow up on this farm? I did, I did. So I'm the fourth generation of my family to, to, um, to live here. I grew up here, but I never wanted to be a farmer. Um, I've got, I, no, I, re I really didn't and everyone uh, in my family will, will um, confirm that I was desperate to leave from year dot. I just, I would always do work if I was asked, but I would never volunteer. Um, and if any opportunity came to, to not be engaged with the farm, then I didn't because I just wasn't interested. And in hindsight, well, at the time, there were some issues there, family friction because I wasn't engaged. But in hindsight, um, it's because I just didn't agree with the farming practices that we were employing. But I didn't have the, um, the, the, the ability, the tools, you know, the maturity or the context to be able to, to understand those, those, those hesitations with regard to um, post-war conventional farming. Mm. Um, and so- I'm not sure we had the language, did we? It, we didn't it, it have the like, Yeah. Absolutely, didn't recognize that there was something inherently wrong with the way that agriculture was moving, the direction of travel. Um, I just knew that my dad was miserable, that we never had any money or any time off, um, that it was cold, the work never stopped and there was no gratitude for it. We just seemed to work ourselves into a hole, but just for the privilege to live on the farm. And don't get me wrong, it is a privilege. It always was a privilege um, and still is to live on the farm. So I'm very grateful to have the opportunity. But when people say, oh, aren't you lucky? I do get a little bit frustrated because I do feel that, yes, we've been lucky to have the opportunity to have a go at it. But it's the hard work, the, the determination to, to carve something out of the land that has allowed us to continue to be here. And plenty of farms and farmers haven't had the opportunity to carry on because they haven't been able to adapt or because contacts have been against them or because they've made poor decisions. You know, not to say that I haven't made poor decisions. I've made a country bunch of bad decisions. <laughs> but I've been fortunate enough to be supported by people who have been able to advise and instruct and help uh, and bring a, a collective vision driven by me, but a collective vision of what Trumpet Farm could and should be to be successful and a harmonious and an inviting place to be going forward. And where did that vision start? So you couldn't wait to get away from the farm. So then you must have had another life. And I'm curious about what that other life was and whether it fed into the vision for the farm. No, not at all. I just wanted to get away. I really <laughs> did. Um, so I went to college um, as soon as I could, um, and then I went to university, and then I moved to London, and I started working um, for a job in the third sector for an ex-homelessness or Ending Street Homelessness organisation for a few months, before while I was applying for, in advert, air commas, a real job, um, then got taken on to a graduate, um, call, a graduate scheme for a large um, multinational construction firm um, and working in their petrochemical division working on oil and gas developments overseas 
So I was, uh, I, was a, I did engineering, so I was a construction engineer in construction planning and liaison with, um, with trades on site in North Africa and then in China. On um, uh, North Africa was a gas development in Alexandria and Egypt and then on an oil refinery in China. And they were fantastic opportunities. Lots of money, lots of travel, lots of experience, met some great people, had a lot of fun, but it all just left me cold. Um, and I knew that it wasn't what I wanted to do long term. Um, even if it if it, it did have lots of pluses, the, 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 the drawbacks. I, again, I have the language to work out why it didn't engage me. Large numbers of like monetary figures were thrown around about you know career prospects and la 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 la, and they really motivated me. Um, and, I, and I didn't really know why. And also the, the the job itself. I mean, enjoy large scale projects and splitting them up into smaller parcels and you know managing large projects. Um, but the petrochemical industry, it it, it didn't really engage me. But again, I don't know why that was. It just, but in hindsight, it's like, oh yeah, because it's it's not cool, right? I mean, yeah, something needs to change there. But I didn't know that at the time because I was, you know, a kid. Um, would any of one have described you as? At what point would you do? You, do you describe yourself as green or environmental, or when did you start to think of yourself as in that way, or, or do you think of yourself in that way? Not particularly. I think of myself as someone who recognises the challenges of of living in a sustainable fashion, given that we lived in a closed loop economy of the world. Um, just explain but, what that is, because I do know. I think I know what you mean, but just not everyone listening will know what you mean by a closed loop economy. Well. Essentially, we live in a, in, a, in a world with finite resources. And, and I don't care if you're green or red or blue or yellow or pink or conservative or labor or whatever, it doesn't matter. I'm not really into politics. What I'm into is reality. And like, if our entire society is predicated on GDP growth and that acquisition of wealth and you know, making life better through, through never ending growth, I don't think that's the right way to go because we live in a world with, of finite resources until we start exploring, you know, outer space from mining. But let's back to one side because it's a little bit Star Trek-y. I mean, not that I don't love Star Trek, Star Trek, don't get me wrong, but um, it's the, that sal human salvation by, by looking outside is, is not the way forward. I think we, we need to look at what we're doing with the planet and we need to live in a sustainable fashion because well come on you, we because you've got to be sustainable otherwise we won't succeed and persevere and and grow as a species so we've got to live in a in a way that meets that fits and that meets the available resources um and so that's just practical that's just practicalities so i don't particularly consider myself an environmentalist or green I, i'm just realistic you can't live beyond your means or shouldn't live beyond your means. Yeah. We on the farm are trying to grow food and sustain an economy and a, a, sustain a society or a community um, within our means. Yeah. What was the tipping point for you when you left? Because that industry is well paid. I can see there would be lots of very attractive aspects to it. So what was the tipping point that brought you home? 
there were two aspects, two things um, uh, that happened that coincided at the same time. My dad got sick and I got another project. My next project was, was going to be in a location that I wasn't particularly enamored with. And so uh, a little bit of me, if I'm honest, was a bit relieved that I had an out um, to, to come back to the farm to try and sort out. I gave me a sabbatical, which I was eternally grateful for, to have 12 months to, to leave the industry, to, take, to come back to the farm, to work out what's gonna happen next, because my, my dad got, um, got, uh, um, got cancer and subsequently, unfortunately, passed away a, a few years later, although we did actually have an opportunity to work together for a while before he did pass away. Um, but uh, I, I still did, wouldn't have then, even then thought of myself as, as um, a regenerative farmer. I didn't, again, have the, the, the words, but wouldn't have considered consider myself a regenerative farmer, although I knew I wanted to farm in a slightly different way because we couldn't farm the way that it had been farmed. It just wasn't realistic. It wasn't financially viable. You look at the books at what my dad was doing and or had done in the past, and it was a different world. So we knew we had to do something different. We just didn't know what that something was. And actually the, the tipping point for, for moving in this regenerative permaculture, um, using permaculture as our design methodology. I, I love the fact that permaculture isn't a wild and woolly, um, uh, just a sense of I, uh, lots of lovely fluffy ideas, although it can be misconstrued as such, but I love the fact that it's, it's essentially it's a design methodology. And I get that that really speaks to me as a um as someone who who needs structure to be able to 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 make things come about i'm, I'm not particularly a people person i'm not particularly a oceans person but um but systems i can i can do and permaculture really gives you that hard and fast principle or set of principles by which you can design a sustainable food production model and so we use permaculture and we use holism and to be able to affect regenerative production. And we use animals and we grow animals and vegetables and cereals and use the outputs from one system as the inputs of, an, of the next system. Um, uh, so we, we try to be as closed loop as we can, reduce our inputs, reduce our cost, increase profit, profitability, but also increase nutrient density in food we're growing and engage with people because we're, we're open and honest about what we're trying to achieve, even if sometimes we don't necessarily succeed. We're open and honest about how we're doing it and we hope that people like what we're trying to do and support us by eating good quality food grown in a way that is sympathetic to the environment and um, that has high animal welfare and all the rest of it. So it's that whole looking at it in a big systems way to look at the, well, this connects to this, connects to that, connects to that, connects to you at your table and your stomach and your micro. <laughs> your yeah, and, and that's not an accident. And that hasn't come about by accident. That has been designed. And we took, you know, you, and you strip it right back to the essentials of the, con the, the, the context of where you are and what do you want to achieve? Because every, every landowner and whether that's a, a um, a widow box, uh, one living in the 12th floor of a, of a block of flats, or whether that's a, a, a large estate landowner with, I don't know, a thousand hectares of, of upland grazing, you've all got the ability to design something better than what is there currently. Um, and, and I really love the fact that um, there are tools out there to help 
people who are landowners or who people just want to grow food and want to eat healthier and be healthier. It gives them the tools to, even if they don't understand that, it gives them the tools to understand, to, to look at themselves, to what they want, what will make them happier, if being happier is what they want, then, well, how do we affect that positive change? And what these fantastic tools are available to us now, which were less easy to find 15, 20 years ago when I started. And so when you started, like, where was the first place? Like, do you have that whole design concept in your head right from the beginning or where did you start and how's it developed? No, it, very much it was a, a learning process and coming across, it, it seemed to be, uh, probably whenever I would have started, it would have, it would have felt like I was part of, of something that was happening. But, um, but because I started in 2006, I started the business at the same time as a number of other businesses started. And because we were all starting at the same time, we were all sort of aware of each other. Um, and it felt like there was something positive going on, happening at that time. Unfortunately, a number of those businesses are not necessarily still going, but a few of them are. But it felt that like there was a real movement of change. When I first started, there was there seemed to be, when I looked around, there was, there was the organic movement that had been going for 20 or 30 years. But really, that didn't speak to me at all. It didn't, because it, it really felt like to be organic meant you were being punished for doing things correctly when conventional farmers were being rewarded for poisoning us. It's like, well, that's just crazy. I'm, why would I want to pay extra to make my produce more expensive for farming in a, in a, in a, in a way which I'm not poisoning people or the land? It just seems crazy. So I, I, organic didn't feel like it was for me, even though it seemed to be the only alternative that was out there to conventional farming. Um, so I had to, to, to find to sort of struck out on my own and find my own path to make, again, I use the word regenerative farming model work, but regenerative farming wasn't a word back then. But yeah. in hindsight, that really is what I was doing. Um, so over the course of the last 15 years, organisations have, have sprung up and have started and they formalised these ideas of, of, you know, capturing and storing carbon in the soil, building soil and building fertility in the soil, um, increasing biodiversity, um, which builds resilience um, and, and increasing nutrient density in food, which has been a long term, well, where there's been a long term degradation for the last say, 50 to 100 years of post war conventional farming, especially exacerbated by the Green Revolution uh, of increased use of pesticides, herbicides, and fertilizers. Mm. And so, where do you. Can it, can you explain a bit about what you do? Because so the word fungage, like I don't know what that means. So I don't know where you want to start on the cycle of what you do on your farm right now. How does it all join up? Because I was there last week and obviously dipping in and out. And from the outside, to some extent, it just looks like a normal farm. But I know that it's not. So can you yeah. tell what, what's going? What are the invisible systems that you can't necessarily <laughs> see to start off with? Well, we. Oh my goodness. So. We have a complicated web of organisations interacting with Trevor Farm. And when I say Trevor Farm, I mean the, the land, the buildings, the primary production of, 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 of meat through our um, free range and outdoor animals. Um, we've got suppliers, we've got customers, um, and we've got uh, uh, compatriot organisations, businesses, which, which we support and they support us. So um, on a legal financial setting, we've got three businesses essentially, which 
um, support Travel at Farm, which are integral to Travel at Farm. Like I said before, you've got Travel at Farm itself, which is uh, a sole um, trader, which is me, which is operating the land, the um, buildings, um, and, the, and the livestock. And then we've got um, a limited company, which is a food business, who is the sole customer for um, the grown and reared outputs from Trevor Farm, the land business. So uh, the food business buys all the meat, all the veg, and processes those um, those products, and also works with other local producers um, to make pies, pasties, sausage rolls, quiche, and that's the main income driver uh, for the overall um, uh, web of enterprises that, that makes up Trevor Farm. Um, so on the upside, so there's lots of benefits to both organisations. Travel Up Farm gets a rent from the limited company um, and so is supported through, um, through the recharge of overheads to be able to in, in invest in infrastructure and, and, um, uh, and um, buildings and, and equipment and facilities. Um, but the food business relies, uh, has, has the benefit of having a reliable um, supplier uh, who is <laughs> who, who is able to um, to be flexible on pay terms. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you even because it's such a complex, and then we haven't even mentioned the community interest part of it. No, how no, did you so, even know? Did you know anything about any of this? How the hell? No, did this is this is out? all this is all made up as I've gone along. <laughs> um, I just it just it, we were running. I was running it as one business to start off with both the food business and the farm, and then also the community aspect of one business. But it was just getting so complicated and you couldn't see the wood for the trees. You couldn't see which elements were making a profit and which elements weren't. Um, and so I split them up into legal organizations. And also we've set up the community business as a, as a, as a community interest company limited by guarantee. So it's a not-for-profit redistribution business, which means it does make a profit by charging um, individuals and groups who can afford it. And then those profits are reinvested into the community project to be able to fund um, opportunities on the farm for individuals and organisations who otherwise wouldn't be able to, to access the opportunities on the farm. Um, but the three organisations support each other in different ways, either with labour or um, with equipment or space or facilities or materials. And they all inter interact with each other, each supporting each other because they're legally separate we're able to look at which elements of the three businesses are working and which elements need 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 work to to, to de develop them and that gives us an amazing amount it always appears that one business is doing okay and two businesses are not <laughs> and we rarely but sometimes have two businesses doing okay but one business not and we almost never, in fact, I would say never have three businesses doing okay. So we're always at a point where two, one or two businesses are supporting the one that is struggling. Mm. But that's wonderful. You know, so we could be hit by, by real shocks like the pandemic. Um, and one or other business might take a significant hit. But actually, that's fine because we, we have the resilience built in by having a third business or even actually more because we've got other incidental businesses happening at different times and we may or may not go onto those because it does add a lot, again, a lot of complexity. But that compl in that complexity, it affords resilience, even if it does take up an in increased amount of, of time and energy to, to move those things forward. 
it's like last week on the permaculture course we were talking about the difference between a monoculture and a, a polyculture yeah. and you, yours is very so this description is polycultural isn't it there's lots of things going on at once all which are kind of cross fertilizing Absolutely. Um, so it's almost like your kind of legal systems are sort of mimicking what you're doing with the land a bit as well absolutely absolutely diversity is key and how like because I can almost see my mind wouldn't be able to cope with that but I wonder if that you know you were talking about the engineering and, and liking things you know to look at how things work do you think there's an element of it is the crossover from that earlier life that you had in in the complexity and the interactions yeah, I mean, I, there's a lot of crossover skill sets that I was able to bring to an agricultural project. But also, I think it's not, that's not particularly unusual. I think if you went to any farm, small or large, you're going to see a huge amount of complexity. You know, the farmers have got to be so diverse in their skill sets mm. because there's so much going on. And one of the big issues with, with agriculture is you're, you're, work, you're working so hard just to stand still because you've got to be a plumber, an electrician, a stockman, uh, you know, an accountant, a marketeer, a delivery driver. You've got just, there's a gazillion things to do every single day just to stand still. And if you want to drive the business forward, you've got to learn new skills all the time, bookkeeping and uh, social media. And you can end up either spending so much time on diversification projects that your initial project or initial business the main business can can suffer or you never get any time off and so you burn yourself out or you recognize that you need support from family members employees or the community when it comes to uh, for us it's the, the permaculture community and you know regenerative farm community and using those skill sets that other people have to support your core functions and again, all these words, core functions and, and uh, community skill sets, and it's all permaculture. It's, it's really given us that language that I lacked mm. before, even though I had the heart to make this happen, I just didn't have the skill sets. I didn't have the, the language and the, the, the yeah, to, to be able to, to describe what was required, uh, break it down into, into manageable projects and get people engaged and enthused and, and actually get people to help me bear out the vision. And I'm just thinking that some of that language you're probably it's still evolving, isn't it? Because actually you're at the edge. You you know we're talking in permaculture about being at the edge. Hmm. Well, that's where the, the fun stuff happens. Yeah, being at the edge that's where the fun stuff. Happens. And actually, I, I think it was actually yourself um, uh, during the, the presentations uh, last Saturday um, who brought a, a concept to mind that really made really struck me. One of the, the big outcomes from the um, from the presentations for the mandala garden project um, is is viewing people as edges uh, because it edges where everything interesting happens so where you get the most biodiversity and you know on the edge of a pool or edge of a sea or edge of a field that's where the interesting stuff happens but actually this is something with people it's when you get individuals rub up against each other and regardless of whether they agree or disagree and actually maybe even better if sometimes people disagree, but rather than getting into a, a groupthink situation, because you can actually make really exciting, interesting things happen if you mm. get a diversity of people rubbing up against each other, but trying to accomplish the same goal. So I view my, my role within the organization as trying to, to herd those, those cats <laughs> into, into 
pulling in the same direction to, to achieve a, a common vision. Mm. Just to put that into context, so, like, so I've done the 12-day permaculture course. At the end of the 12-day course, you have to do a project. And the project was that Ian wanted a mandala garden growing. But it's not, you know, it's not that, is it? It's also a testing site for food nutrients and, and food kind of health. Um, and it's also a testing site for biochar, which is uh, something you can create on site, which is good for the soil. See, I was listening, wasn't I? You were, you were. <laughs> I was paying attention. But the bit that I was involved with was the kind of how to bring all the people together. Um, and what I loved, we, because there was eight of us on the course, there was four of us in, in my team, and we were all so different, different skill sets. And it made me realize how rare it is to really collaborate in the sense of let's include all of our differences to make something that's bigger than all of us. Um, and I, I actually, I have had that experience before, but not very often. And I'm curious, is that what you're, is that kind of part of how you have done this? Like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's exactly what what it's all about it's it's you because you can't do it yourself you just can't there's just too much unless you strip back the complexity and you know and a lot of farms do do that and they can be financially successful i don't particularly know how because that's not my realm but you know large scale monocultures apparently that's the way to go so the, 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 the learning of the day goes, you know, lots of chemicals, lots of sprays, lots of um, GPS mounted, huge tractors costing tens, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds. Apparently, if, if you just have a, um, a contractor in to do your, your, your groundwork and uh, as a farmer, you just in control these these turn the knobs and, and just focus 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 on doing one job really really well economies of the scale you can make it stack up but that's that just doesn't seem the way for me to, to grow nutritious food that makes what people does success look like for you because obviously what you're describing is because we're almost there's an economic conversation underlying some of what we're saying because you're sort of challenging a conventional economic model of GDP and profit and linear, let's get this, because you're talking about volunteers and community interest companies and um, yeah. partnerships and collaboration. And I'm, I'm sure there's people thinking, well, well, how does that work financially? And what, what's the exchange? You know, how, because you're, you're challenging that as well, aren't you? Not just farming, but- Absolutely. We did a, um, it was, we did a, a little TV Thing called Born Mucky on Grass Network a couple of years ago and um, there were three farms featured. The other two were arable and mine was the, 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 the animal farm um, and they were very different, they were much larger, um, fewer people involved in the project and no, I think no diversification projects. I don't think one of them was setting up a glamping enterprise but they were predominantly grain um or grains different, different arable crops and um we we were a little bit the jokey farm because we are small and because we are diverse and got things we're trying out new things and things go wrong as they and they they managed to capture all those things going wrong on film um which made for good tv but it, it, yeah a little bit embarrassing but whatever uh, i didn't engage with social media too much as it was going on that I didn't want to be trolled. I wasn't my, I, in, I just didn't care really what people thought about how it went. But I did notice a couple of people. Um, the one incident where 
we had um, the pigs out. We had to move them from one place to another. And they, they, the TV hammed it up a little bit, but it, they did. They were tricky to move because pigs can be tricky to move. Um, and on social media, there was a, a few snarky comments about, oh, because we, we got people to help us to move the pigs. And so there were like 12 of us moving the pigs. And, you know, the guys from the bakery came out to help out. And, you know, um, a couple of people who rent spaces on the farm, they were around. We had some volunteers and some workers and um, some, just some people who were just around. And we said, oh, can you just stand there? And you stand there and you stand there and we'll try and move it into the field. And so we did it and we got some people coming to say, well, I'm not surprised he's on the prey, not making much money if, if he's employing that many people. But a few people underneath replied to whoever this person was saying, no, you don't get it. He's not paying. They're not employees. They're there because they want to be there, not because they have to be there or being paid for it. You've missed the, missed the point. And I do feel it's that's what it, when I was growing up on this farm, there'd be a dozen people here. And not because they had to be and being paid, it's because the neighbours would turn up for a cuppa, the coalman would stop for a cuppa, the milkman would stop for a cuppa, the post would stop for a cuppa. You know, there would be reps turning up for a cuppa. My dad, I'm surprised my dad got anything done, the amount of cups of tea and coffee I had all day long, I'll tell you what. But it was, a, it was vibrant. There was people here all the time. And then there were employees. And then there were, you know, just the family members from other farms around the place. they just pop in to see what was going on, if you lend a hand or borrow a piece of equipment or whatever there was stuff happening all the time that unfortunately just isn't the case on most like conventional farms these days they're they're closed operations biosecurity and you know uh, the reduction in employees and increased reliance on um, machinery and red deal and bigger farms and less families it's going in a direction which doesn't make me comfortable what we're trying to do is is recreate a little bit i guess the farm of my childhood where but without the stress of of trying to to fit in with a conventional model mm. it's i mean that the view down your vegetable garden you know over the fields because your vegetable garden is very beautiful isn't it and the flea tunnel in all that hailstone was definitely the place <laughs> i wanted to be it was so cold last week yeah but that as a local I'm local to your farm like the one thing during lockdown that I really would have like where are you up to with vegetables because I know you do the meat and we do buy some of your meat but the, the fridge box thing because there's no one in Shropshire and Wales really I know there's a big place is it Riverside or River that does yeah stuff. but they're a they're a multi they're a multinational firm and yeah. they they have um uh what's it called when um uh, oh my goodness what's it called when you you other farms can use the for name um oh they like franchise they franchise. franchise there you go exactly so they're supported from the center and don't get me wrong i'm more of what Bridford have done but um the the reason why do you see it as well how you know what, well, what, the, what as locals can we be looking forward to oh well the, the thing is that's the thing it's, it's it, it leads into a much bigger conversation about food production um, yeah. and societal views of food, which we're not going to cover in this, or, or sort of definitely not going to solve in this conversation, but right. just to touch on it, no, there are very few vegetable farms in this, in this part of the world and in, in the in country at all, because it doesn't pay. If, it, right. if it, there was a fantastic amount of margin and it was fantastically profitable to grow vegetables, there'd be loads of people growing vegetables. But it's market forces that have reduced the number of veg growers because it's just not worth the effort. 
unless you charge an absolute bloody fortune. And then people say, what? That's an expensive leak. I'm not having that. I can go to Aldi or Lidl and get it for mm. buttons. Well, okay, but go to Aldi and Lidl. You're going to get something that's been shipped in from, from Spain, probably from Murcia, you know, grown in polytunnels or in really low nutrient density shipped or flown from West Africa or wherever over to this country and packaged in plastic and extended shelf life by being gas flushed and it, yeah but because we're, we're looking with the whole society is driven by, by cost and by price and by GDP rather than and ignoring health effects and ignoring the environmental effects of cheap food so it's the, those those external costs are ignored to the detriment of our health and a detriment mm. of of people's livelihoods because farmers can't afford to grow veg because it's just not worth it. it doesn't stack up you can't make it pay yeah no god because i don't even know what gassing is that sounds like, what is it? like <laughs> that sounds horrible but i i see that and i it's interesting because i wonder if did that change at all during lockdown because i know some people obviously <coughs> lost work didn't they during lockdown but I also know there's another group of people who because they weren't going out spending money you know at the shops suddenly had money and wanted to buy decent local food um and so I wondered if that change okay so we just had one of those little interruptions there sorry folks we're back to it so it was about lockdown and changing and buying habits did you notice that well, yeah, absolutely. So um, lockdown had a massive impact. The first lockdown especially, and the second lockdown less so, and third lockdown not at all. Um, the first lockdown, you know, the supermarket could cope, and so people need food from somewhere, and the small producers who are more resilient and have stronger supply chains, shorter supply chains, I should say, um, as well as stronger and more diverse, were able to continue um, serving people. And so the increase in retail sales was dramatic for our business as well as many other food businesses. However, those retail sales didn't offset um, the decrease, the loss of wholesale sales. So even though our retail sales were, were absolutely through the roof of the first lockdown, um, it didn't, it didn't um, mitigate the, the financial loss from our wholesale customers closing. Uh, it, that was the first lockdown where increased retail sales was dramatic. The second lockdown, which was less dramatic, it was even worse, um, uh, the losses for the food business, although we had a really good summer, so that, that helped um, uh, offset some of the losses. Um, but then the second lockdown was not great, but we survived. And the third lockdown, it was winter anyway, and winter's always terrible, and so we, we hunkered down, it was fine, and like I was saying earlier, we have that diversity um, of income and of, of business model. So we were able to, to, to weather the storms of the three lockdowns. Uh, however, that said, we did notice that people's buying habits did change, mm. but now it's pretty much back to where it was before the first lockdown. Well, it's just, I find that depressing. <laughs> it is what it is. I mean, Trevor Farmer is not going to solve, is not going to solve the, the food sustainability issues that we have in this country. The coronavirus is not going to solve it, but it did highlight it. Um, yeah. So hopefully more people are talking about it, thinking about it. I mean, I've been talking about it and thinking about it and banging my little drum for the last 10 years or so, and most people are pretty bored of me talking about it. Well, except that, you know, 
we're getting people come to the permaculture um, courses on the farm. And, you know, we were featured on this, this little TV programme called Born Lucky, and hopefully I was able to get us across it somewhat. And then we're having this conversation, which people will hopefully listen to, you know, and there's opportunities out there to have these conversations and get people talking about nutrient density, cheap food, public health, yeah. public expenditure, you know, um, taxes going on uh, on class two diabetes, type two diabetes. You know, that's that's a fully uh, avoidable disease. Yeah. But the, the public health message has not not got that off there. It hasn't caught up with the realities of, of our food production system. So hopefully that will happen going forward. I'm smiling because you're like kind of radical activist, politician, engineer, systems organizer, agriculturalist, economist, um, sociologist. <laughs> I'm like, um, but I still don't know about foggage. Let's land it a bit. So what? So what is this? So I, I have family who are farmers who have cattle in sheds. Who is it called deep littering, where they, you know, the yeah. cattle stand on lots of stuff and then they dredge it out and that goes on the fields as slurry. So what, what, but you didn't seem to have a, you know, I don't know, what do you do? Apart from have very cute piglets, I noticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so we've got um, uh, beef cattle and they're Herefords. Um, the bull Corky, my beautiful bull Corky is a pedigree Hereford. And then we've got 17 cows. Um, and then we've got calves this year and we've got yearlings from last year. And we grow them to between two and three years old. And then they go off to abattoir, local abattoir, 12 miles away. And they come back and we butcher them um, into joint steaks. And then the mince and the steak, uh, the, the, the diced beef goes into the pies. Then we've got outdoor pigs. So we've got breeding sows and a boar. Um, we've got hold on, twins, Sandy, Maggie. Got, currently, we've got four breeding sows. Is that right? Yeah, four breeding sows and barry. Um, and they live in our pig shed up the with little paddocks out in the front so they can come and go inside and out. Um, very happy animals. Uh, and then the, their offspring, we grow for sausage, bacon, um, and in the pies and sausage rolls. And we use those, we, we use all of our animals to, to manage the ground. Um, and the, we, we say that the, the, the pigs are free range um, because the, the, the sows and the boar are able to come and go inside and out um, all year long. The, the, the pig, the growers, once we take the piglets, once we wean them, about 10 weeks, um, they initially go into uh, a barn um, and they're inside the barn and we use them to do a composting project for us. So because is, everything's so complicated, everything is so interlinked, this is a, I'm just, thinking because what we use them to do is to cut them to, to compost down the the cattle um manure for, for cattle that have been housed over the winter however we don't act with the aim is not as the cattle at all so we operate a holistic land grazing regime which effectively means the basics mean that we move the cattle every between one and three days from in paddocks within the fields um, that uh, helps cattle gut health um, it helps uh, the, um, the ground health of soil biodiversity and the nutrient density of the meat um, it just it helps the grass growth it, it sequesters carbon it does it does lots and lots of positive things 
um, managing the capital in a, in a slightly different way to, to many conventional firms. Um, it reduces our inputs because we, uh, but I'm going away from. So they're outside all year round, uh, apart from we have, um, when we have calves, our carving at the moment is, is summer carving. We would like to bring it to, back to spring carving, but last year we had spring and um, summer carving. The summer calves are not big enough um, by the autumn or winter, once they're weaned from their mothers, they're not big enough to go outside on their own through the really bad weather in January, February. The cows and the yearlings, the, the previous year's calves, they're fine outside, they're, they're happy enough, um, regardless of the temperature. Um, but the, the uh, younger calves, they stay in the shed of the year. And then once they have um, been in the shed, once they're kicked out, then their muck is processed by the pigs um, with biochar uh, to, to inoculate biochar that they will then be used on the fields that we will grow arable and also in the gardens. Well, that's just one example of a, a circle where everything uh, then feeds in. Yeah, yeah, that's one example of lots and lots of examples. Yeah, and you said you're not organic. Are you organic? I know that you don't jump through the hoop for organic. Okay, so we farm in an organic style. Um, so we don't do anything that would preclude us from being organic. And in fact, I believe we go far and above and beyond um, the rules of organic. So if we wanted to, we could easily get that certification but I choose not to because I am protesting at the fact that organic farmers have to pay a premium to, to farm sustainably. Yeah, no, I get that. I just think it's worth saying that, isn't it? That it's free range and organic and sustainable and- Regenerative. Um, We're actually putting back in. There's one of the, the things that we do that it frustrates me about organic. Okay, so there's this um, dichotomy, there's this choice if you're a conventional farmer and you want to grow organic, you want to um, be as sustainable as possible and grow arable, then you spray off your ground to be able to reduce the amount of tillage. So you don't have to plough, so you can direct drill seed into ground and not have it um, uh, forbs or plants you don't want in that place, not necessarily weeds, they're just plants you don't want in that place to, to outcompete your, your cash crop, your arable crop. So, okay, fine. So you're not uh, uh, ploughing and releasing lots of carbon into the atmosphere, but you are using the herbicide. But if you're organic, you use herbicide, fine, but you plough. Well, the, well, that's no good because you're releasing carbon dioxide, you're destroying soil structure, you're destroying the mycelium net of uh, the web that's in the, the top few inches of the, of the ground. So we, we neither spray nor till. So we actually do, well, we, we don't plough, we do use, employ minimum tillage. So we go through with a cultivator just to scratch the top surface and then go in with a direct drill to put in our combination crops of peas and barley, which we then um, whole crop and bale and use as pig food. So our cattle are all exclusively pasture fed, no grains, but the, the pigs are fed on homegrown forage. It just couldn't get any better, couldn't it? And it's kind of, I'm, I think until I did the course last week, I hadn't really understood. I probably would have used sustainable and regenerative interchangeably, but they're not. They're different, no, aren't they? No, they're very different. Yeah. Sustainable can just about keep going. Yeah. But regenerative is actually increasing nutrient density and sequestering carbon and cleaning water, not just not poisoning it, but actively making it cleaner and better. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, it's it's really exciting. So, what's the plan? Like, what's the what's the vision? What where from here? What's the next bit? Well, there's lots of things. You know, we've got lots of projects going on. Um, we've if with regard to water, we've got plans to continue our um, regeneration of the watercourse by, by uh, creating a new um, constructed wetland. For the woodland, we've got a hundred year um, woodland management plan with planting lots and lots of trees, which is expensive but time consuming, but is my dad, towards the end of his life, he said the only great regret he had was not planting more trees because, because they weren't farmers you know, post-war, they were incentivized to to take out hedges, to take out trees, to increase field sizes, and you know, economy and of scale was all, and productivity was all. You know, there were there were quotas. They got rewarded the more they produced. That's not the case now. There's there's slightly different um, uh, uh, priorities. And although we're not, we don't get rewarded for these projects. It is the right thing to do. So land management wise, we're continuing the regeneration of our grasslands, woodlands, watercourses, uplands. Um, we're engaging with more people through Mandala Garden. That was one of the outcomes of the permaculture design course was using um, the gardens and the growing as a way, not, not just and not only to grow food. Um, because of the previous conversation, food is actually difficult and expensive to grow. Um, so we can't sell it as a business, but what we can do it is we can sell it as a way of engaging with people, a way of, of, of explaining people where food comes from, why we're generating as we are. So having this beautiful productive garden and using it as a, a scientific research um, uh, uh, opportunity to see whether biochar actually does work. It's, I think we're probably going to find it does, but mm. let's not let's not second guess it. We'll find out. Um, but it gives us an opportunity to, to spread uh, the the brand and, and to, to to advertise the brand and grow the the food business which means we sell more pies which means it's a, we're more financially sustainable which then rewards the farm which means we're then able to invest in in uh, infrastructure and opportunities going forward for more individuals and uh, small organizations to to work with the farm and it just grows the community the web of, of supported businesses and individuals who engage with us yeah uh, and so it's really, again, it's bringing the community into that vision, isn't it? It's part of what we haven't really talked about. We've only got a couple of minutes left, but <laughs> I know it's gone so fast. There's so much to talk about. But tell me a bit about where community does fit. Because you've kind of got your in-farm community, haven't you? You've got the guys that are there and girls that are there. But what more? Tell me more about what community means to you for the farm. I mean, you're right. That you could, we could talk for another hour about what the community means. Um, but really briefly... Uh, it, okay. Tall <laughs> <How do> you... <laughs> order. Sorry. Tall order. So we engage with a number of different individuals and organisations. Some of them fee paying, some of them not. Um, so we work with uh, uh, schools, colleges, um, uh, organisations to provide um, opportunities for um, school kids, primary school kids, secondary school kids, work opportunities, basic skills training. Uh, we work with kids with behavioural issues from different organisations. We work with adults with mental health issues. Um, a wide range of client groups, all supported through the core function of the farm. Um, Steph, my partner, um, she uh, works in the CIC and she is a, a trainee counsellor and a forest school leader. So she uses um, 
elements of our school and also horticultural therapy to provide um, individuals with, with access to the outdoors and act, uh, doing meaningful jobs that benefit the farm, um, but also benefit uh, mental health and, 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 um, and all the rest of it. So yeah, there's the, there's the formal business where we actually engage with organizational individuals. And then we've got the informal community aspect of business where you know, we host monthly farmers markets where, and volunteers and other stallholders get involved with setting up the, the farms market and benefits from the wide community engagement with the farm, coming up to the farm, buying their, their local produce, their pitch, their mint, their, mint, their, 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 their um, regenerative um, uh, dairy products from Babbins Wood Farm, another local um, regenerative farm. Um, they listen to music, they can have a drink, homemade alcohol and, and ciders and things in our, local, in, our, in our bar, you know, with a license, you know, just check out all the board. Um, but, there's, uh, but then there's the growing side of things as well. So we have um, just people who volunteers who come up on a weekly or bi-weekly um, uh, um, uh, setting and, and we provide them an opportunity to get health benefits, mental health benefits, you know, skills acquisition from, from learning about what we're doing, how to grow food and eat, and eat food in a healthy fashion and prepare food as well. Cause we have a, the kitchen projects where we, where we train people to, to cook things and uh, uh, the locally grown and sourced produce um, that will make them feel better and feel healthier and, and be healthier. It's just such an awesome multicolored, multifaceted kind of, even now it is that, all of that as a way of life isn't it but also the the vision it's kind of like like a patchwork of 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 businesses and people and skills and mindsets and kind of new ideas coming together to create something really beautiful which has the ability to keep being added to I know that's probably quite a feminine metaphor sorry but I can't think of a we need the masculine and the feminine together I mean I'm the processes guys Steph is the the people person yeah. so you know and everyone who engages with the farm bring an aspect of their own personality to the project yeah. and through that diversity we find resilience and um so if anyone wants to be involved in the farm you know in touch we one of the things that we realized um out of the last permaculture design project is that we need we need to engage with more people but we also need to do that in a in a structured fashion so what we're trying to build now is the is to we have the structured formal community business, but what we need to do is now in the next stage, the exciting thing is to, to formalize the informal community, um, if you see what I mean. And having someone and having a group, having a steering group and a committee of, of, of working together to apportion tasks so it doesn't fall to just one person or, or a set of people to, to bring about the vision. Because mm. the, the vision will benefit a huge number of people not only the people who live and work on the farm. So to bring that about and to bring that about in a timely fashion, we need people who are interested in being engaged and want to spend some time and find a way to, you know, to find, to make a living out of it as well. Because there's so many opportunities for, for making a, a profit out of growing things and making things and teaching people things. You know courses and products and uh, yeah there's we've got so many fun things we could do and yeah. we're only we're piking your farm on the on the borders of the marches there's there's hundreds of not thousands of farms in this country and they all have the potential to do exactly the same thing we're doing it's not as if just because Trump and farm are doing it 
no one else can do it in the locality or even our next door farm our next door farm could do all the things we're doing and it wouldn't be detrimental to either business mm. there's enough people out there who could and should be engaging with where that food comes from tesco's can afford it you know what <laughs> they'll be okay sainsbury's aldi little they'll be okay if a few more farms get into growing veg and making pies and sausages and bacon you know diversity is good Oh, Ian, what's the thing, have you, when you think about everything you've said on this conversation, is there anything that you're surprised that you've said or is there anything that you wish that you'd said? Oh my goodness, I, I, I'm banging my drum, so I, I think we've covered, we've covered most of the tack that we needed to talk about, I reckon. Okay. Um, the, the thing that, that hit me recently and that I'm still grappling with and I'm excited by going forward is the concept of people as edge and actually utilizing people to affect change in in a, in a in a timely manner i've been doing this for you know 15 years or so and we've come so far but i think the next 15 years we can do a, an awful lot more if we can if we can get people to to recognize that there is benefit in what we're doing and get people on board and be that people just being supportive by like liking social media stuff or whether it's customers or whether it's attendees or volunteers or just well-wishers or financial supporters or whoever however whatever mm. yeah, the, the, that really excites me what is daunting is knowing quite how to manage the whole the whole thing and and because yeah that's that communications challenge is 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 the next item on the list to, to to look at and it kind of that really sums up your way of thinking isn't it is it's just the next challenge the next problem to be solved you know we'll make mistakes along the way but actually it's all about learning and because it you're really trying to do something in some ways really old-fashioned but also something really different something really different and really new definitely and one of the things that i would like uh, that I'm trying to do along the journeys to record it as well and that's why I'm very grateful for this opportunity to speak with you and to have this now as a resource that we can share is yeah. because can you imagine what it would be like if we had a zoom meeting recording of my great 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 uncle talking about what he was doing on the farm and why he was doing it like yeah. all I've got is the buildings that's all I've got left you know the ground has been worked so many times um, you know, nothing written down. You know, the only thing I've got is looking at some of the buildings to look back and see, oh, well, that piece looks to be about that age. And it's been, but it's been used for a hundred different uh, uses in the interim. But can it be, I'd love to know what he was thinking, why yeah. he did what he did. What did he do and why did he do it? So it, it's, it's fun to be able to, to think that that story is now is now going to, to live on a little bit more. So that's, kind of, that's a bit of an egoic thing, I guess, as well. But I'm, I'm enjoying that. <laughs> you, you enjoy it. And also, it's not just, it, I sound, it's not just ego, is it? It's also farm and continuity and lineage and ancestral and roots and all of that. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So listen, we'll put links to the farm and links to anywhere you want it, maybe the permaculture stuff. So we'll do all that and put it in the show notes. But um, in still, Treflex Farm. Yay, we did it. We found a whole hour when no one interrupted. <laughs> Yay, you did it. Okay, thank thanks, you. See ya. Thank you very much.
Hey, it's Julie here, and I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, I'd love to hear from you too, if you've got a thing or a way of living or a passion that just lights you up and fills you with energy. So please do get in touch at julieleone.com if you fancy a conversation, or if you're listening to this thinking, ah, I wish I could find a thing or a way of living that lights me up and fills me with energy, then get in touch and we can have a conversation about coaching or some of the ways that I might be able to support you in finding that. So all of that is at www.julieleone.com go to the contact page and drop me a note you can also see some of my books writing and coaching there Um, if you've enjoyed the podcast please share it with your friends like subscribe and review it just so that other people can find it and just pick up on some of those happy vibes Um, but thank you for joining me it's always a pleasure to do the podcast and hopefully you find something positive from them for listening to so take care speak soon see you on the next episode